we are starting the Doctrine series today, um, which I'm extremely excited about. It's fun to, um, it's fun to preach, and uh, it's exciting to talk about these things of the faith. One of the things we do here at Remedy, if you have not been with us before, is we like to preach um, through books of the Bible. And we don't just do that because it's fun or that's easier or, or whatever. Um, when you preach through books of the Bible, what it does is it helps you not to take things out of context. Um, and when these things were given to us, they weren't given to us just in chunks of verses here and there. I mean, they were written as letters or as messages or as complete books. And so these books, if we just kind of pull, pick and choose what we want out of there, what we can end up doing is only studying the things we want to study or only studying the things that we like and not really wrestling or dealing with other issues. So by going through books of the Bible, we end up talking about things that we never uh, would talk about naturally that maybe may be uncomfortable with or things that just aren't in our wheelhouse. And so we kind of will, we we might want to stay away from those. So naturally what we want to do is we want to kind of have a book of the Bible. We just want to start at the beginning and go all the way through the end um, and see everything that it has that's been said in there. But every now and then what we do is we will take a break from that and do another type of series. And this is one of those series. This series uh, for the next, as Fled said, for the next 15 weeks is on, on doctrine. Now, the New American... Uh, New American Oxford, New Oxford American Dictionary uh, defines doctrine as a belief held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. So it's real simple. It's a belief held and taught by a church. And the, the danger is that if we don't talk about things like doctrine, there's a couple things that can happen. One, we can be people who go to church or people who grew up in church, and we kind of know about things of the faith, and we kind of know some things, but we can just say, yeah, I believe that, but not dig into it and understand what is it really about? What are its implications? What are its depths? And we can hang out at a real shallow level instead of really diving in deeper to understand more of what we believe. Um, we cannot be guilty of people who just say, yeah, we believe something that we don't really understand, dig into, and understand why we believe it and why it's important. So this series is really kind of to help us as those who are following Jesus to dig deeper into these, these core truths. Now, over this next 15 weeks, obviously, we are not going to be able to talk about every single thing that we believe as a church. Uh, when Fudd and I got together and we were, we were praying over this, what we did was we both kind of said, all right, let's see. We'll do 15. We both came up with a, a list of 15 doctrines that we thought were uh, highly important for us as a church to go through. And then we took those lists and kind of put them together. And if I remember right, I think like 12 of them were exactly the same. And we each had three that were slightly different. Um, and then we, we picked and chose which ones we thought worked in best. But we won't cover everything. Uh, the other reason why it's important to do a series on doctrine is because we understand and we hope in, in some ways that, that every week there are people here who aren't following Jesus. And what we mean by that is we want to be a place where people who aren't following Jesus come and hear the truth about what the Bible says and about who Jesus is. And so there could be the chance this morning that even in this room there are people who aren't following Jesus who right now want to know and try to understand why do you as Christians believe this book? Why do you believe what you believe? 
And so we want to be able to present that so that people who aren't following Jesus can hear and understand the truth and know why it is we believe what we believe. Now, a couple of things before we really dive in, a couple of things I want to uh, address about the series as a whole. And what I really want to address is things that the series is not. Because when we say, okay, we're going to do a series on doctrine, there's a couple of things that, that, that could come to mind. And so I think we need to kind of set some, some, um, some groundwork here so that you kind of know where we're going to be going and kind of what to expect over the next couple of weeks. Um, the first thing is this, is this is not a complete explanation of every doctrine. Okay, let's just be honest. You all have told jokes about how long Fudd and I preach. Okay, it's okay. Matt did it last week. It's good. It's good and humorous. We like it. It's okay. Fudd and I have tough skin. We can handle that. We know we preach long. It's okay. But if you guys wanted us to completely unpack every single doctrine, we would be here for hours and talk about the same doctrine every week. So, that being said, we are not going to completely unpack every detail of every doctrine. You will probably be left with some questions and some, I, I want to know more about that. I want to dig in deeper, and I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. The other thing that this is not, and it's really close to that, is this is not going to be an apologetic defense of every single doctrine. Because sometimes those of us who are following Jesus, when we hear a, a doctrinal series, what we want is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but we kind of want some ammunition so that when somebody asks us a question, we want to have the answers for them to be able to defend all of that. So this series is not a series that it's an apologetic defense of these doctrines. So some things we will present about the Word this morning, I will say this is what we believe. Now sometimes we will say, we will dig in a little more and say, and this is why we believe it, and there will be some apologetics there. But if you're coming to these looking for, okay, I want a defense as to why we believe all of these things, you won't find all of that in these series. Again, if we were to do that, it would take a very long time. If we were to say, just this morning, we're going to do doctrine of the word. If we really wanted to say, okay, we want to dig out and pull out everything about this doctrine and apologetically defend it, we would probably have a 15-week series on the word. And, I, and, I, and I'm not being facetious. If we really wanted to do every bit of that, it would stretch out over a very long period of time. So with that in mind, I, I'll, get, I'll get to these right here. I brought these this morning because I want you to actually physically see them, okay? Fudd and I were talking about this this week. We recommend that everybody in our church have at least one of these books. Our, our, um, our systematic theology text, which kind of serves as our, our theology, um, that is our go-to text, uh, is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Okay? If you were writing that down, Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M, Wayne Grudem. Now, that's not to say there aren't other systematic theologies. It's not to say there aren't other good theologies, strong biblical theologies. There are several of them. But for us, this is, our, this is our main theology text. And what Wayne Grudem has done is Wayne Grudem has written this monster right here called Systematic Theology. Okay, This is the text that Fudd and I used in seminary. It is a seminary-level text. Now, don't let that scare you too much uh, because Grudem writes in such a way that it's very deep, but it's very accessible. Um, he then took and condensed Systematic Theology down a little bit and wrote this one called Bible Doctrine. Basically, it is systematic theology condensed, kind of pulled together, strung down just a little bit. And this one is more on a college level, okay? This is the book that our elder candidates used as they're studying theology each month. 
This is a book that's really good for somebody who has been a believer for a while, got the basics of the faith, and is really looking to dig in. Uh, my wife has used this with some college students, and they go through chapters, and it's accessible. Um, it is very highly interesting. Uh, I remember her, uh, she told me that when she started to go through with a couple of students, she honestly thought, I'm going to pick this up, and we're going to get through it, and it's going to be boring. And every week, she would talk about how exciting it was to read the chapter. Uh, one of the great things about Grudem is he not only presents truth in a very good and powerful way, but he makes it interesting to read as well, which is good. Now, some of you may be like, hey, I'm just beginning in this. I'm not even, like, I don't even, I couldn't even, I couldn't even spell theology if you asked me to. I mean, it's just, like, I am just at the very, very minimal, I'm, I've just started following Jesus, or I want to know a little more about what it means to follow Jesus. Well, Grudem has, has now taken this book and condensed it even more. So, I mean, look at the size difference here. I mean, like, that's like a chapter in systematic theology. But this book right here called... Tw- 20 basics every Christian should know, okay? 20 chapters condensed it down even smaller. This is kind of like, this would be like the bullet points from systematic theology. Very concise. Again, same writing style, easy to get. So what I would say is if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're a new follower of Jesus or you've never studied any theology at all and you just don't even know where to start, this would be a good one. If you've been a follower of Christ and you really need to push yourself and grow on the Bible doctrine and then if you're hardcore, grab the beast, okay? Get Grudem Systematic Theology. Let it bless you. Those would be good. The reason why I bring those up is because of what I said this series is not. We can't give you everything right now. But as you hear and as your interest is piqued, go to one of these resources, read, and then find somebody to talk with these things, talk about with, with somebody. So whether that's me or FUD or people, somebody in your community group or your GCD or wherever that might be, talk about these things, read them, ask questions, dig into it a little bit more. All right, that being said, let's pray and talk about the doctrine of the word. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And this morning we stand under it and stand under its authority. And Father, we pray that as we speak and as we hear, that this simply would not be a gathering of knowledge, but that the truth of your scripture and the weight and the glory of it would sink upon us. And we would love Jesus more. And we would follow Jesus stronger. And we would trust you because your word is valuable and good and holy. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we will be talking about the doctrine of the word. Um, I, I wanted to condense it down into a very, um, very easy to manage sentence. And this is what we mean when we say the doctrine of the word. We believe the Bible to be the very words of God. Short, sweet, and to the point. We believe the Bible to be the very words of God. Now, why start with Scripture? If we've got the doctrinal series, we're intentional about the order we put these in. Why start with Scripture? Well, first thing I want to say is that God is a speaking God. What you'll find is that the, the phrase, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, that phrase in just the Old Testament alone was used 265 times in the Old Testament alone. The word of the Lord. The, wor- the phrase, the Lord said, occurs 259 times. 
And so over and over and over again in the Bible, God is referred to as a speaking God. And what you find is that when God speaks, there are several things we might notice. One, his words are powerful. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible starts out and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then when you get to verse, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, Let there be light. And there was light. I mean, do you, do you get that? When God created everything, what he did was speak. And so as the world came into existence, it all happened with God speaking. Now sometimes we just want to kind of rush past that and not, you know, yeah, God spoke and then it was, and God said and it was, and yeah, but let that just kind of be our starting point this morning. The entire of creation began with a word from God. When God speaks, it is powerful. And then after Adam and Eve had been created and they turned against God and they rebelled, God then spoke again and he promised that he would send a redeemer, which he did. And so God, throughout the scriptures, is speaking promises He's not just talking and just saying things to be heard. He's not just having a dialogue with himself. God is speaking, things are happening, and God is speaking about things that he will do. And in the third chapter of the Bible, he promises a redeemer, one to fix mankind's problem, and he ultimately sends him. We see that when God made a covenant with his people, a promise, he entered in. He came down to them, rescued them from slavery and bondage. They were at the mountain of God. There's this firestorm of lightning and fire and smoke. And what happens? God speaks to his people. And later it is said, has there ever been any nation whom the Lord has spoken to and the people have not been consumed? God spoke the words of the promise of his covenant to his people. God spoke constantly to his people through his prophets. He would speak to the prophets the message that the people needed to hear. And as God would speak to them, it would be words of encouragement. It would be words of chastisement. It would be words of hope. It would be words of instruction. And God is constantly giving his word. It was King Josiah who went and through was making all these reforms in the kingdom. The nation had spread into idolatry. He was breaking down the altars. He was crushing them. He was burning them. He was doing all this thing to try to get the people to come back to God. And they're cleaning up the temple. And these guys said, hey, look, we found a book. And they bring it to the king. And when they do, it is the word of God. And he opens it. And when he does, Josiah tears his robe and repents because he sees the word of God. And though he was doing good, he understands the magnitude of it because he saw the very words that God himself had spoken. But maybe even more important than that, John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was was God. And he goes on to say that nothing was created that was not created through him. You see, Jesus, the fullest expression of God to our eyes and ears and everything around us was the word of God. And then Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God sustains the universe by the power of his word. 
there is a strong, amazing emphasis on the Word of God from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation reveals a God who has spoken to us. And so if God has got so much of an emphasis on His Word, then we should obviously start here. Al Mohler writes this in referring to the uh, difference between the gods that are of the people and, and the one true God. He writes, Idols are seen, but they don't speak. The one true and living God is seen, is not seen, but He is heard. The contrast is intentional, graphic, and clear. We speak because we have heard. The very basis for all that we have is the Word of God. Grudem writes this, Any responsible look at a single Christian belief should be based on what God says about the subject. Therefore, it makes sense to start with the basis for those beliefs, God's words or the Bible. So we start there because God has spoken. And then also, if you, if you want to know, I mean, we, we kind of have, have this Baptist heritage. We, as Baptists, Baptists are known for saying, no creed but the Bible. We're not, a, we're not a creedal people. And what I mean by that is that creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these things aren't bad, they're not, they're not negative. But as Baptists, we, we understand that God has spoken to us. And so we don't have a creed as our, our standard. We, we have the Bible. It's important to us. And so as Baptists confess what they believe and write down, these are the things that we think. Every major Baptist confession always starts with the Bible. The Bible is our basis for everything. So if that's true, then we need to ask the question, according to what Grudem said, we've got to start with the Bible. The question I have this morning is, what do we believe about the Word? And to there, we're going to go to the passage that Ben read this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one, in one of the, uh, under, on the floor under the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it. Um, be blessed in reading it. Um, as you tell from this morning, we have placed a strong emphasis on the Bible. 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing instructions to Timothy. This is widely held and accepted as Paul's last letter. He's sitting in prison. He's expecting he's about to die. He's already written one letter to Timothy, instructing him how to carry out his pastoral responsibilities. And this is Paul's last letter. He's writing it to Timothy. He's in Ephesus. And one of the things you see is in this, there's always a strong emphasis on doctrine and the word. And this is probably one of the most powerful statements about the Bible itself written. And so I want to read it again because I want us to, I want us to read it again and then dive into it a little bit. 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17, Paul writes this, But as for you, speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So a couple of things I want to point out. Some things that Paul writes. First off is the Scriptures. He writes that in verse 14 
I'm sorry, verse 15, that Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings. And then he goes on in verse 16 and speaks of Scripture. So the question is, what is Paul referring to? Because there's a lot of things that have been written. There's a lot of books out there. What is it that Paul is referring to? Well, we know that Paul was trained as a Pharisee at the feet of Gamaliel. If you look in Philippians chapter 3, he goes through his entire heritage and pedigree. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He knew the Torah. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And so we know that in looking at this, Paul is definitely referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. What we have as the Old Testament. But there's something even more, because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul, 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes the book of Luke and says that it is Scripture. So Paul has already looked at the Gospel of Luke. It has already been written. It's already in circulation amongst the churches. The churches are already accepting Luke as Scripture. And then we know that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. He says that people will take and distort Paul's writings as they do the other Scriptures. And so we know that in the time of writing here, it's not just the Old Testament that is in view, because the apostles are already viewing the books of the New Testament as Scripture. And what we, what we call this, the theological word for this, is the canon of Scripture. The word canon is not like canon, boom, I'm going to blow it up. Uh, the word canon is a word that means measuring stick. And so what the, when the, the reason they use the word canon is because each of these books that are accepted as Scripture have met the requirements. They've met the measuring rod. They, they measure up. Things like, were they written by uh, a prophet or an apostle? Or someone who is under the authority of those? Were they widely accepted? Were they written within the time frame? Do they contain anything that's obviously heretical? So for instance, not too long ago, there was a thing that came out called the lost books of the Bible. I'd like to tell you something. They were neither lost nor books of the Bible. Okay? The early church was well aware of the gospel of Thomas. They knew that it was there, and they looked at it, and they knew when it said things like Jesus looked at Mary Magdalene and said one day she would become a man, therefore she could enter the kingdom of heaven. That it's ridiculous. It doesn't match up with the gospel. And so they looked at these books, and they said they're heretical. They don't teach the truth about Jesus. We were there. We saw him. We heard his voice. We saw the teachings. They don't match up with scripture. These books do not need to be read because they will not lead you in the truth. And so when Paul is talking about the scriptures here, we know that he is talking about what we have as the Bible. So what do we have? We have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. 27 in the New, 39 in the Old. I worried about my math there for a second. But those are the books. Now, one of the things that does make us a little different from the Catholic Church, if you grew up in a Catholic background or know people who are from a Catholic background, The Catholic Bible does have 13 more books in it than our Protestant Bibles do. We do not believe those 13 books are Scripture. And the reason why is those 13 books are ancient Jewish writings that predate the New Testament. And the Jewish community never accepted those books as Scripture. They thought they were good books. They thought they taught godly things. But they never viewed them as Scripture. And when Jerome, an old guy... uh, very dead, uh, was translating the scriptures into Latin, he went ahead and translated those books as well. And so they're contained in what's called the Vulgate, which is the earliest uh, copy of the Bible in Latin. 
And so the Catholic Church has adopted the Vulgate and said, because of all these are in here, we include that in our canon of Scripture. The Jewish community, the people of Christ, never accepted those books. They aren't quoted in the Bible. There are some possible allusions, but they're even kind of stretched a little bit. They're not quoted. They weren't accepted as Scripture, so we don't look at those as Scripture. So the books that we refer to when Paul's talking about Scripture and when we talk about the Word are the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So, first thing we learn about the Scriptures. The second thing we learn is that the Scriptures are necessary. Notice in verse 4, Verse 15, Paul says that and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. What he means by that is in the word of God and in the word of God alone is where we find the message of the gospel. Where we find the truth about mankind's condition and how we can be reconciled to God. In 1689, a group of Baptists in England wrote what's called the Second London Confession. This is an old writing. It's one of the one of the very first confessions by Baptists of this is what we believe, and this is what they wrote: the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times, which I just love that word, I don't really know what it means, sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself. These make the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people now being ceased. So what we find is that creation reveals the power of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God. According to Romans chapter 1, it is there. People can see it. It leaves people inexcusable. But unless we hear the truth of the gospel, we will not be reconciled to God. And we find the truth of the gospel in the scripture. A corollary to that is that what we call the idea of the clarity of scripture. Again, the second uh, London Confession says this. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain a sufficient understanding of them. What that is saying is, there are mysteries in the Bible. All of us know that there are places in the Bible, and you pick it up, and you read it, and it just... It's, it's difficult to understand. It's not completely clear. There are mysteries. There are profound things that are there. But we understand the truth that what is necessary for people to come to, know, come to a knowledge of their sin and know that Christ has provided a way for them to be reconciled to God is clearly stated multiple places throughout the Scripture. And so that which is necessary for people to believe is clear and that as we study and as we learn and as people open it to us and as we, the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts, Scripture becomes more and more clear to us that we understand more and more things. 
Yes, there are difficult things. And when you set your path that you are going to study the Word of God and you want to learn it and you want to you treasure it and you want to follow it, you will have days when there are things that it just makes perfect sense. It's like a light has come on and it's just as clear as it could be. And you'd say, how did I ever not know this? And there will be days where you'll open it up and you'll just sit there and go, what the world? What does this mean? And you'll have to study, and you'll have to prod, and you'll have to look, and you'll have to dig in. Some things are not as clear as others. But what is necessary for us is very clear and very plain. Oh, the goodness of God that He would speak to us in such a way that we can hear and we can understand. So the necessity of Scripture... Third thing is this, Scripture is the words of God. Now that sounds like bad English, but let me tell you why I left that sentence this way. This morning I was studying over my sermon, and I was like, should it be Scripture are the words of God? Scriptures are the words of God? And I was wrestling with it, and I almost thought, well, Scripture has the word of God. And if we're not careful, we can come along and say, Scripture contains the words of God. But look at what Timothy says in 2 Timothy 3.16. I mean, Paul says, all Scripture, all Scripture, every bit of it, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Literally here, Paul, and you can do this in Greek. You can't do it in English. People make fun of you. But you can make up words in Greek, okay? So he just takes two words and he slams them together to make a whole new word. Theonoustikos. God breathed, God expelled. He's saying all of Scripture is as if the breath of God has come out. It's not man breathed, it is God breathed and all of Scripture. And so what we believe is that all of Scripture doesn't just contain the words of God as if they're hidden in there and what we've got to do is separate the words of man from the words of God and distill them down and find out which is which. All of Scripture is God-breathed. So that means when I'm doing my Read the Bible Through a Year program that I've been doing, and I got to uh, places in Second Chronicles or First Chronicles, I read about 12 chapters of genealogies. I, I, I was kind of at a loss. I was, I was really glad my Bible reading plan had like, you know, I've got a gospel and one of the epistles and I was reading Psalms and then I would get to the genealogy because when I got to those genealogies, I'm, I, really I was praying. It's like, God, I believe this is your word. I, I have no idea why I need to know that this guy was the son of this guy and they had this many sheep and oxen. I don't, I don't know that and I'm not trying to be facetious here, but, but you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes we want to say, well, that's just a genealogy list. The real words of God is over in the gospel. No, that is the word of God too. And so when we get to those things, we don't just ignore them. We say, all right, God, I don't, I don't understand how this affects me right now, but this is your word. This is for me, even the genealogies. So I will look and I will read and I will trust. So when we say this, what we mean by this, when we, the word that we use, we say that Scripture is inspired. God is the voice of all Scripture. Men were His chosen instruments to record and preserve His Word, but according to 2 Peter 1.21, they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So at some points in times, God would actually speak, write what I'm about to say. 
Sometimes God would reveal himself in a dream. Sometimes God would give them an oracle. God would do whatever. But no matter how God revealed himself, no matter how God gave them the words, God gave the words, and then the Holy Spirit was there as they wrote, making sure what they wrote was correct, not containing any mixture of error. And one of the beautiful things that the Holy Spirit did was he, he used these men in their own, their own style, in their own personalities, and they, it wasn't overridden, yet at the same time, in the midst of all that that came true, Luke's got this really poetic Greek, and Peter's like rough fisherman Greek, and all of those are the words of God, and this is beautiful array that God uses all kinds of people, the wisest person in the world, Solomon, or those who aren't his wise, Amos, who was a fig picker, that's what he did. Dude had a fig farm. God called him out of that and he made him a prophet. And he spoke and he wrote what was written down. He used people who were experts in the law and he used people who weren't. And God does all of this and it magnifies the Holy Spirit that he doesn't just say, okay, I need the best scribes and those are the only ones that I'm going to use. I'm just going to use this one person. Throughout time and throughout history, the Holy Spirit, different people, different gifts, different personalities, and in the midst of it all, uses every single one of them to point to one place, Jesus. And it's an amazing thing. And if we believe the Word of God has inspired all of it, it leads us to believe two other things. First off is this, and this is a word that's, that's not used in Scripture, but it is a word that we believe. We also hold that Scripture is inerrant. Meaning that as the Holy Spirit wrote, as the Holy Spirit moved these men to write, as they wrote, what they wrote was completely true without any mixture of error. Now, here's one of the other things that's amazing that the Holy Spirit did. More than just the first writing, there were copies made. Multiple copies made. People would read and they would make copies and they would send them out and they'd send them out and copies were made and copies were made and copies were made. It's amazing that the Holy Spirit did that because in there is such wisdom. Because you know, as I know, that if you copy something, if you were to sit down with a page and you were to copy it, there's a good chance you might reverse a word order or you might leave a word out. Or your brain might accidentally change a phrase that you weren't intending to. And if you didn't just hand me your copy, I would think that's exactly what the original said. But if every single one of us in this room copying the same thing, we can put those papers side by side and we can see where Matt left out a whole sentence. So what do we do? Well, okay, we know that that's not right. That's an error. So we can fix it. And then what we can do is copy the right sentence. You see, the beauty is that the Holy Spirit not only made sure that they wrote the same things, He now has preserved multiple hundreds of, and thousands of copies and that what we can do is we can put them all together and we can see, oh wait, somebody left a word out here, so that's not right, let's make sure we get it right. And it's preserved the truth of God's Word throughout the ages. So what we have is very, very trustworthy. We have the words of God. There's another word we use, and it's called infallible. Infallible really means this. The infallible means that it will, is our ultimate guide to faith and practice. It will never lead us into error. 
Now, I purposefully used both of those words because there are some people who will use the word infallible and they will say, yes, the Bible will never lead you into truth or error, but they will not use the word inerrant because they believe that the Bible is a combination of God and men, and they believe that the Bible contains the word of God, but it also has the word of men. So there are errors in there some places. You just got to sort them out, and it's infallible where God's spoken because it won't lead you into error. We believe that the Bible is inerrant, and we believe that the Bible is infallible. It is the words of God given to us, protected by the Holy Spirit, and we believe the Bible will not lead you into truth and error. It is God's word. Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says this, The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principle by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So we believe that the Scripture is the Word of God. Fourth thing is this. We believe Scripture is authoritative. Notice what Paul writes. He says, not only will the scriptures make you wise for salvation, not only is it breathed out by God in his words, but it's therefore, if it's breathed out by God, it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, making one competent and equipping for every good work. Notice all this. If you are going to reprove someone, if you're going to correct someone, if you're going to teach someone, if you're going to train somebody what it means to be righteous, the question is, are you going to come up with that on your own? Or is there going to be some source of authority outside of you that is going to be the standard? And Paul answers that question for us. Timothy, you don't have to reprove people based on your opinion. In fact, don't do that. Your authority is the word of God. I don't reprove someone, I don't teach someone, I don't correct someone, I don't train somebody in righteousness based off of my own opinions or what I think. Because all of that is ultimately God's role. And God has not left us to wonder what he thinks about these things. God has spoken to us and given us his word. Therefore, the scripture is authoritative in our lives in the life of our church, in the life of our family, in the way that we think about the world, in the way that we think about life, about everything. This is why Paul says, Timothy, don't forget the scriptures. They're breathed out by God, and therefore they are authoritative for you, for the church, for everybody else. That is a powerful thing. And can I just tell you, we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful because in our our church culture and in the place where we live here in the southeast United States and this idea of the Bible Belt, it's becoming less so, but there is still a culture in which we can say, yes, the Bible is the word of God. Yes, I've got it. And it can sit on our shelf and it has no more authority over us than anything else. And if this is the word of God, then it must hold sway over our life. So what should our response be to this doctrine? What should we say because we've studied it? 
Well, there's three things I'd like to point us to this morning as kind of a response to this doctrine. If, if what we believe about the Word is true, then it can't just stop with that knowledge. It should evoke a response in us. We, we, should, we should move out of that. And so there's three things that I would like to bring out this morning. First is this. We must recognize the mercy in the Word. Carl F.H. Henry, a theologian, writes this, If divine revelation in terms of speech means anything, it implies, among other things, that God need not have thus disclosed himself. God might indeed have remained silent and incommunicative in relation to his creatures. His relational speech to mankind is not an inevitability of the ultimate nature of things. God's speaking is a venture of divine determination and initiative. God could have not spoken. God could have chosen to remain silent. And I want you to think about our options. If God had remained silent, really the only options we have is to never even knew that he existed, or to know that he existed and try to figure out our way to figure him out. We'd have been left in a lurch. There's nothing we could have done. But God spoke clearly and over and over and over again. And he didn't just speak words of condemnation, God spoke words of love and grace and mercy spoke words of truth, pointed out where we were in error so that we might turn back to Him in the truth. That God would speak to us when we were rebellious is an overwhelming thing. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I, don't, when I pick up my Bible, I don't say, oh, the mercy of God that He would speak to me. That he would cause his words not only to come forth, but to be written down. So that when I have questions, and when I need hope, and when I don't understand things, and when I'm in the error, I have them right here in front of me. And he has guarded it, and he has protected it, so that when I open it, it speaks to me. Oh, the mercy of God that he would speak to us. Second thing is this, we must recognize the weight in the world, in the word. We must recognize the weight in the world. Not only is it a mercy, but if God himself, the creator of the universe, has spoken to us, that is huge. And there is a responsibility that goes with that. There's a responsibility to read and to hear and a responsibility to respond to it. I think there's also a responsibility for us to say, if it's God's word, how am I going to get into it? Basically, if God has spoken to me, how am I going to open my ears that I might hear? Because if God has spoken in His Word, and yet we leave it closed continually, it is as if we're plugging our ears when God speaks. 
But as we open the Word, we understand this is God's Word. And as we open it, what we're doing is we are asking God to speak to us. We understand the weight of the words and we want it to fall on us because it is a weight that is easy and a burden that is light. Last thing is this. We must recognize the treasure in the word. We are people of the word because in it we hear and learn of our Savior. When Carrie and I were engaged, she was in college in North Carolina, and I was a semester missionary in Wyoming. I was working in a church. And this was the old days, okay? We would write emails, but we still used calling cards because our cell phones didn't have uh, unlimited long distance, and we paid by the minute and all that kind of stuff. But one of the best things, honestly, was when I would go and they would check the mail, and there was actually a handwritten letter by my fiance to me. And I would get it and I would be excited and I wouldn't wait to read it. I would go read it right away because I knew who she was, what she meant to me, and that was valuable to me. And my prayer for us is that that would be the way that we approach the word because it is so wonderfully good. God has spoken to us. Do you want to know the value that Jesus placed on the Word? I was reading this morning, Luke chapter 16. Jesus tells the story of uh, Lazarus, the, the poor man, and the rich man. And in the parable, he gives this parable. He says the rich man dies, and he, the rich man's in hell, and Lazarus is in heaven. And he, he, he asks that Lazarus would come and dip his finger in water, that he'd cool it off. And he says, it can't happen. That's not the way it works. He's where he is. You're where, you're where you are. There's a chasm. It can't be crossed. He believed. You didn't. And so what the, what the man who's in hell does, he says, well, will you please send Lazarus to my family? Send Lazarus back to my brothers and sisters. That, that They would hear and listen to him, and they would believe. And Abraham looks at him, and he says, they've got Moses and the prophets, a way of referring to the Old Testament. And the rich man says, no, no, they, they've got it, but they don't believe it. But if somebody comes back, And the point of the story Jesus gets to in the end, right here, he says, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe somebody who has come back from the dead. Sometimes we think, oh, if God would just do miraculous things, if God would do amazing things, if God would show up awesome in this person's life, then they would believe, then they would follow, and God looks at you and says, the most miraculous thing you need is my word. I have given it to you. It is like a two-edged sword that pierces deep. Will you allow the word to pierce you? Will you allow the word to draw you to Jesus? Will you see the mercy in it? Will you feel the glorious weight of it? And will you treasure it in your life? Let's not take it for granted. I'll close with this. I read a story not too long ago of a training for Chinese pastors in the underground church in China where it's illegal for them to be part of the unsanctioned church, uh, state church. And the guy who was writing this was an American, and he kind of looked in horror. These Chinese pastors were taken ripping up Bibles, and he couldn't figure out what they were doing. And what he was eventually told 
is that none of them had Bibles, but somebody had one. So what they were doing were tearing out books of the Bible so that each of them could at least have a small portion of Scripture. So they could take it, and they could study it, and they would teach it, and if they ever got back together again, they would trade around so they could have another small portion of Scripture. And it hit me that in my office, I've got a stack of Bibles about this wide. May it never be that I look at those and they just become something that sits on a shelf. But may I read it and may it get deep into our heart. We're going to respond in a time of worship now. And, and as we sing this next song, we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. In the Lord's Supper, we remember that the Word made flesh God's ultimate revelation of himself in Christ. We celebrate his death and resurrection for us. His body given, his blood shed. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to take this with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you refrain and simply watch and hear and see what we do as we proclaim the Lord's death. And the Bible says that as we get ready to take, we are to prepare ourselves to make sure we are right. And 1 Corinthians tells us that. So take this time during this song to pray if you need to confess, if you need to to worship, if you need to set your heart right before the Lord. And then as you do in the middle of the song, if you would make your way to the front or the back and take the elements. And when the song is finished, Fudd will lead us in the taking of the supper. Let me pray and we will go. Father, thank you for your word. It's great and glorious and good and overwhelming. You have not left us as orphans. You have given us your spirit and you have given us your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not take and hide it, but that we would bury it in our hearts, that it would be on our minds and on our mouths, that in it we would be able to see truth from error, that it would become our lens through which we examine the entire world. And that, God, you would be exalted in our lives, that you would use it in a way that only you can. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we ask now that as we prepare to take of the supper, that you would open our hearts to Jesus, that you would reveal to us anything within us that is improper and impure, and that we might confess it and we might worship in our singing, in our taking of the supper, in our living, in our thinking, and in our doing. We love you and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.